Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Lord's Cricket Podcast, an Ashes Special. Well, welcome along to this Ashes Podcast Special, brought to you from the Lord's Pavilion in association with Wisden Cricket Monthly. I'm your host, Will Rowe, and in this episode, Botham's Ashes, we look at how one of the most iconic cricket series of all time unfolded in the English summer of 1981. From the depths of despair at Lord's to the highs of Headingley, it was a roller coaster six week period that captured the nation's attentions quite like no other Test series did before and maybe since. To look back at the key moments and tell the story of one of England's greatest Ashes series, I'm joined in the Lord's Long Room by one of the main protagonists that summer, former England fast bowler Bob Willis. Welcome, Bob. Hi. Nice to have you along. And alongside Bob, editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. Welcome, Phil. Hi, Will. Great stuff. Well, we're here in the Long Room, uh, quite a room to be recording this podcast in. I think let's take everyone back to 1981. What was going on in that summer, Bob? Well, for the England cricket team, it was a tumultuous time, um, as it was in the country in general. Uh, political unrest, uh, strikes going on, uh, people pretty feeling pretty low, with only the sort of royal wedding to look forward to, to lift their spirits. England had a, had a rough time in the West Indies, not steamrolled quite as badly as they were on their following tour under David Gower, but um, the team was optimistic, uh, having uh, you know weathered the West Indies storm and coming into the English summer. And the Aussies usually bring out the best in England's team, so we were in uh, pretty high spirits when we got to Trent Bridge. When the Australians arrived, it was sort of the strongest Australian side for a while because the previous couple of Ashes series there have been the, the Kerry Packer and World Series cricket. Um, as a side, how confident were you going into 81? Yeah, well, Australia had a few problems. They had massive problems in 1977 when the Packer story broke, when uh, Greg Chappell was the captain and sort of half the team had signed up to World Series cricket and the other half uh, hadn't. So they divided into two factions. In 1981, they were unified again, and uh, the uh, unified team had had smashed England 3-0 in a short non-Ashes series in Australia in 79-80. But there were problems about the captaincy. Kim Hughes, who stayed loyal to the establishment cricket and hadn't played for 
Kerry Packer, um, had two thorny old characters, uh, Rod Marsh <laughs> and Dennis Lilly, uh, you know, under his tutelage, if you like, and it didn't work out too well. So there were chinks in the Aussie armour, but on paper, a very strong side. Kim Hughes is, it doesn't quite fit in with the, the archetype of the Australian tough, hard-nosed, heavy-drinking cricketer of the time. And I think, having read around that time, he never quite broke the, the kind of the, that connection between Marsh and Lily. And there was the Western Australia element as well. Lily was three years older than Kim Hughes. Kim Hughes was the new kid on the block down in Perth, and Lily went after him. And I think there was a there was an, an alpha element to to their relationship. And I think Hughes was around 24, 25 when he was in charge over here in 81. And even though he was a, renowned as a glorious player on his day, yeah. he, was, he was a kind of a fragile cricketer whose average really kind of belied his ability overall and was famously, uh, famously jacked in the captaincy in 84 in tears against the West Indies. And that was almost his legacy, really, not just the 81 summer, but then resigning in tears against West Indies two or three years later. Um, and he wasn't helped out by the senior men on that tour that summer. No, he wasn't. Um, I guess when Australia went one up at uh, Trent Bridge, they saw it was going to be a bit of a cakewalk. Um, and uh, the problems didn't really arise until uh, things started going against them and the, the tide turned. But there was definitely an undercurrent... Uh, in the team. I think uh, England had patched up all the differences between Packer players and non-Packer players. I mean, it's difficult to uh, explain how unpleasant it was in county dressing rooms around the country when players were playing with people who'd signed up for Packer. They really were outcasts. I can remember at Warwickshire, hardly anybody was speaking to Dennis Amos uh, during the... uh, sort of a summer of 1978, so after the first uh, Australian summer of World Series cricket. Were there any Packer players in the England side in, in 81? I'm trying to think back. The, the team changed so often in 1981, although it was a winning series. I think the team changed every time. Mm-hmm. Just looking at that first Test match, Trent Bridge, um, both of them said at the time, if we'd caught our catches, we'd have fancied that we'd have won that game. Is that your recollection? Very much so, yes. Uh, How many did they grass off your bowling? Well, there were plenty. Uh, there were plenty <laughs> of everybody's bowling uh, from memory. Clearly, Ian was distracted by this ridiculous policy of naming the captain test by test match. Can you imagine that happening these days? You were appointed for one test match at a time. But certainly, uh, as we've seen in more recent times, catches going down can alter the, not the only the result of one test match, but the outcome of a whole series. And uh, England certainly did have butterfingers at Trent Bridge. And it was a close match, and England could have won it if they'd caught better. There's so many ifs and buts in this series that we're going to come on to. It's an absolute roller coaster. Um, that first test match, Australia come away. Um, they knock off 132 in the final. 
in the in the final innings to win you know with six wickets down so it's a four wicket victory as you say Bob plenty of catches went down England could have won that then the story moves to Lords um, a bit of a damp squib of a test match quite a few tests in around that time at Lords weren't that good uh, the umpires came off a bad light when they shouldn't have done it was rain affected and it, it plays out for a draw but the story at this point is Botham's captaincy is under fire. There was even this bizarre thing I was uh, doing my research on BBC Newsnight. They actually had a prosecution against Ian Botham uh, to think now that you'd have such a thing on, a, on an English captain on, on BBC Two with Paxman or whoever it is that presents it these days. Um, but if you could sort of pick up the story at Lord's Bob, it's that moment where... What was it like in the dressing room with, with the pressure on Ian? You must have... As players, you must have felt it. Yeah, well, we felt, uh, you know, the uh, chance to slip through our fingers at Trent Bridge. Uh, Four-wicket victory sounds more convincing than it actually was, I think. And as you say, uh, weather, bad light, uh, fairly damp and dingy conditions. And you could feel that uh, the pressure was mounting because... Uh, the press had really got stuck into the side, and Ian in particular. Uh, the, the press corps had been in the West Indies and witnessed at first hand Ian's aversion to nets. And in those days, uh, there wasn't uh, a whole host of backup staff, so basically, the captain was in charge of uh, organising the net practice and a little bit like David Gow on the following tour to the West Indies nets were anathema to these guys, they hated nets so organising it for other people was not a strong point and the press noticed this so often they were expecting the side to be seen to be doing the right thing although completely outgunned by the West Indies at every turn you know they were meant to be mm. practising hard and not being pictured on the beach or with a beer in their hand or a girl on their arm. So uh, uh, the uh, the tom-toms were certainly uh, pounding in the press corps and uh, they were after blood. And, of course, uh, they eventually got it after the Lord's Test. And it was at that Test match, the, the, the infamous now moment where... In the final innings, both them bags a pair. He's bowled by Ray Bright around his legs, mm -hmm. trying to go for quick runs, but the, the test is all but over. So it's this, this narrative starts to develop where everyone's focusing on both them. And then it's one of the most famous walks back, uh, sorry, one of the most famous walk back from the, the Lord's Middle um, for all the wrong reasons. Well, you were six months old at the time, I, Phil. I, what do you remember? I, I, all right, hold on. I was a year and a half. <laughs> a year and a half, I was. Um, well, firstly, my nan bought me a VHS of Botham's Ashes when I was six years old, and, and it's not exaggerating to say that my hopeless devotion to this game began with that video. And so I, for my sins, know literally every line from it, literally every scorecard from it as well. And, and as Botham's walking back that, that afternoon, and you rightly say he was going for quick runs, he was, he was playing selflessly, as of course he always did, and, and Tony Lewis, the great old Welsh commentator, former England captain, he... He simply kind of mutters under his breath, returns to silence as he walks through the long room. And the, the MCC members, whose ghosts drift through this morning as we sit here in the long room, they were all studiously reading their telegraphs and their times. Is, you know, there weren't too many guardians in there, I wouldn't have thought at the time. Uh, and both of them walked through to this kind of deafening silence. And, 
and it's fair to say, Bob, that he didn't take to that too well. No, he didn't. He had a, uh, a hate-hate relationship with <laughs> MCC uh, at that time. Fortunately, as the years uh, unfolded, it got much better. And I remember the MCC putting on a splendid party for Ian when he was uh, quite rightly uh, knighted uh, much later in his life. But, yeah, as you say, heads were bowed. I don't think... Uh, people are expecting thunderous applause if someone gets a, a duck or indeed a pear but uh, they were sort of turning their heads away and uh, um, you know a rather distasteful manner and I think that that was uh, certainly some of the reason why uh, Ian decided to uh, throw in the towel uh, at the end of the match. There's a lot of controversy about what actually went on at the conclusion of the game and uh, I think Alec Bedser was rather foolish to tell the press afterwards well yes Ian did resign but uh, we I was going to sack him I was going to sack him anyway I mean what that does to the uh, individual's morale and the team spirit of the side uh, is anyone's guess but uh, it was a pretty grim time for Ian I, I can remember him uh, getting into his car and uh, driving out here and there must have been an, an enormous uh, burden on his mind. Can I just ask you briefly, albeit from quite a small sample size, what style of captain was Botham? Admittedly against the all-conquering West Indies predominantly at the time. Well, he wanted people to express themselves. There weren't many Churchillian speeches. Uh, I think the thing that Ian didn't understand was uh, a lot of people did need motivation and reassurance, which, of course, Beefy never did. Pull on your England uh, sweater and uh, you're representing your country. Go out there and I'm going to take on the world. But, uh, you know, lesser mortals needed a hand on the shoulder, which Ian wasn't particularly gifted at. He was also very young at the time, wasn't he? Well, yes, it was, it was Brian Close's selection to uh, make Ian captain. And Ian had learned a lot about the game from Closey down at uh, Somerset. And uh, both of them always had a very, very keen cricketing brain, but not the ideal attributes to be a captain. Yes, on the field he knew um, what was going on, where to place the field, but it was off the field and as I say, organising practice or attending press conferences or uh, to be seen to be doing the right thing off the field did not come easily to Ian. So uh, uh, he wasn't the right man for the job at that time. Mm -hmm. He might have been in four or five years' time. Mm. Um, in the, the, the chaos of the post-Lords uh, resignation stroke sacking, etc., Botham was interviewed and he was asked by Peter West, who pre presented the BBC's uh, stuff at the time, he said, who should take over from you? And he said, well, in my opinion, the, the most well-equipped captain out there is Mike Brearley. So Botham was quite prescient, let's say, on that. He identified that that's what the team needed uh, uh, post his own captaincy era. And obviously the rest is history. Time for a short ad break now, and when we come back, we'll pick up the story with the test match that changed the summer, Headingley. The first issue of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, an Ashes special, is in shops now. 
To subscribe and save over £20, go to wisdomsubs.com forward slash ashes. Right, to begin the second half of this podcast, we start with a short interview clip from Mike Brearley. Recalled to the side as captain, having retired the year before, Brearley was effectively parachuted in in a gamble that would pay off as England turned the series around in dramatic fashion. But hindsight is a beautiful thing, and when I caught up with Mike earlier this year, I asked him how he felt coming back into the side with a star player whose pride was wounded after losing the captaincy, and a strike bowler who appeared unfit just days before that crucial third test. Well, I was excited, of course, but I was also a bit nervous, and one of the things that made me nervous was how would it be with Ian in particular? And, the, and I think I was also uneasy with Bob because it wasn't so much that he was ageing. After all, he had several years more playing for England after that. But he hadn't been well. We'd been to... He'd, he'd had chest infections. He was running in and bowling no balls. He had lost his spearhead role. Graham Dilly had come into the side. And there was a big question whether Dilly should open the bowling with both them rather than Willis. And so I think he was quite unsure and not really fully fit and um, we, we at first didn't pick him for the Headingley test you know we, we gathered he wasn't fully fit and then we heard but luckily before we'd announced the team I mean this was really rather shocking we heard before we'd announced the team um, that he was fit and we said well all right then you better play for the second 11 or the 40 over match and bowl your allotted overs and bowl for a good couple of spells and make sure in a match you're fully fit, you're running in well and you feel all right. So we did that and we picked him and he played. But he was very, that close to not playing. It seems crazy to think, Bob, that you almost didn't play in that famous uh, third test at Headingley. Yes, it was quite bizarre really. Um, uh, Warwickshire were playing Surrey at the Oval in the match between the uh, tests and uh, I'd, as Mike said, uh, had a chest infection during the Lord's Test match and I missed the county match. And Alec Betts uh, rang me up and said, I'm sorry, Bob, you haven't been picked for the Test match, but Mike, the new captain, wants everybody 100% fit. And I said, Alec, the only reason I'm not playing in this match is so that I'd be uh, fit for Thursday... Uh, and 100% for the Headingley Test match. So I managed to persuade Alec that uh, I could play in a one-day game for Warwickshire's second eleven. So uh, Alec uh, agreed to this, and he rang up uh, Major Carr, who was the Secretary of Derbyshire, and he intercepted Mike Hendricks' invitation to play in the match that's how archaic things were <laughs> as recently as 1981 Alec Betzer would get his inkwell and quill pen out and handwrite invitations to the players and uh, at the bottom did you want to accept the fee for playing that sort <laughs> of thing and so Mike didn't get his invitation so I headed uh, uh, from uh, Birmingham up to Leeds uh, for the uh, nets on the Wednesday before the test match but it was a, a close run thing uh, whether I was going to get picked or not and I suppose when Australia made 401 for 9 declared uh, they wondered whether they'd made the right decision Botham tells a story about this that the day before uh, the game's due to commence Brearley comes up to him and says how are you feeling? 
And obviously Beefy being Beefy said, yeah, I'm feeling good. He said, you sure you want to play this one? And he said, well, yeah, of course I do. And then there was a pause and then Brilly said, okay, I think you're going to get 200 runs and 10 wickets. And then he kind of walks away with a smile. So if we're talking about the kind of subtle dynamics of power, very clever work by Brearley straight away to firstly sting both of them, I suppose, uh, into, into focusing on, what, on the here and now, forgetting what's gone in, gone in previous weeks. Yeah. And then having stung him, then the praise comes after that. You know, very subtle little plays as ever, but Brearley, of course, famously, as Rodney Hogg said, had a degree in people. He learned captaincy the hard way because uh, he came into a very dysfunctional although very experienced Middlesex dressing room as captain and the old soaks like Eric Russell and Peter Parfit and John Murray and Fred Titmus, uh, they were the senior cabal at Middlesex and really had to sort of break this up and get these old pros performing for the team. And both at county level, at international level, Mike had to suffer this sort of undercurrent, well, he's not really very good as a batsman, is he? Is he worth his place in the side? Clearly he was at Middlesex. But when it came to England selection, there was certainly always a question mark about Brearley's place in the side on merit as a batsman. But in terms of managing his team, I can't think of anybody who got anywhere near him as uh, being able to get the best out of the people under him. Well, both of them plays at Headingley. He's in the side. Bob, you just make the side. Um, and then, but things don't go very well. Really loses the toss. Australia 401 for nine declared. England a bold out for 174. <laughs> so even at Headingley, things are going wrong. It's, it's a turnaround within a turnaround. This is quite a miraculous test match. Um, and then England are 105 for five following on. And then it's the famous yeah. Botham innings. For those that don't know it, it's where he comes out and just slaps 149 not out. Yeah, well, just to rewind, just, just very, very, very briefly. Of course. End of day three, England were naught for one following on because Gucci had, had, had nicked off, I think, or probably LBW, I'd have thought, to Alderman uh, in the last minutes of day three. And famously... Uh, most of the England boys, I don't know if you did, Bob, but everyone else checked out of the hotel, uh, assuming that day four would be, would be the final day of that game. Uh, and was the rest day between day three and four? Was that right? That's right, yes. I mean, in those so days... for a party, naturally. Enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, uh, the, uh, the older members of the side, I think, were uh, considering their, uh, the notes for their epitaph... Um, <laughs> during the game and there's always this sort of um, reverse sense of humour about what's going to happen. You've got a character like Peter Willey in the side with his, uh, you know, sort of uh, downtrodden look and uh, dark humour and one of us, one or two of us joined in with that. <laughs> uh, but the infamous barbecue at uh, Ian's uh, was uh, an amazing affair really. Uh, he was living in the Humberside village of Epworth in those days, not that far away from Headingley, and the Australian team bus uh, turned up with a whole touring party, and a great time was had by all. I, I mean, I don't think that sort of thing happens anymore, which is a great shame. Yeah. 
although the sides were locking horns on the field and fearsome rivalry on the field, off the field, uh, uh, beers were shared and anecdotes uh, passed from one to the other and a great time was had by all. But this was a party mid-test. This was oh, during very the much test so. match. Oh, you yes. Went yeah, to I Ian's house I mean, it was uh, probably apposite that uh, Joe Root denied that there was a drinking culture in the current England side. Uh, of uh, 2017, uh, I think to a certain extent, apart from Brearley, there probably was a drinking culture <laughs> in the 1981 team. And we, uh, you know, uh, even after a day's play, we would decamp probably in our England ties and blazers to the local pub and uh, down pipe pints, not necessarily with the opposition, but t- together during the game. I mean, that's, it, that's it was the way ever it thus, was. Though. It was ever thus. I was reading about the timeless test, 1939, Wally Hammond's tour of South Africa, and, and yeah, I mean, the boys enjoyed themselves. There's no, no two ways about it. Bill Edrich, a legend of this place here, yeah. would be regularly poked and woken up, you know, half an hour or so before he's got to be down at the ground, and that was, that was how he chose to to get the best out of himself. It's funny how these stories continue to repeat themselves. You know, the Ben Stokes story as well, the England drinking culture so-called or otherwise. This is, this is the way that cricket has always been, Bob, right? Well, one hopes so in a way. <laughs> I mean, the side is obviously more professional these days, but uh, the cure for the hangover after the Botham barbecue on the Saturday night was not... Uh, a few Alka-Seltzer and then uh, no. back to Leeds. It was straight into the Queen's Head in Epworth for a few reviving pints when the <laughs> pub opened at 12 o'clock. <laughs> uh, but, yes, the uh, bags were packed on the uh, Monday morning as everybody thought that England would be rolled over by mid-afternoon. And not only would uh, England be 2 nil down, but a few test careers would be uh, assigned if you'll forgive the pun, to the ashes. And um, uh, that's really what the feeling was when we got back to uh, the ground at Headingley and perhaps um, the magician's magic uh, from Brearley hadn't quite worked this time. At that point, 100 on, 105 for 5, I think it was, still yeah. way behind on second innings. Well, they were 100. Um, I mean, they were still just trying to avoid an innings defeat yeah. at this point. And then that quickly became 130 for 7. So they were 90-odd behind, just forcing Australia to bat again, when, of course, Graham Dilley, who was a, a young, young quick and a, you know, a, a kind of punchy game number number nine number ten with a good eye for a ball he came out to bat with no test match pedigree whatsoever and played Bob out of his skin he certainly did and it was Ian in his inimitable style made uh, Graham relax the Botham innings had started uh, fairly strangely Uh, basically Ian just started having a slog and some great shots in amongst some edges over the slips and through the gaps in the in the cordon behind the wicket. And it was really at this time where the cracks in the relationship between Hughes and Marsh and Lilly really opened up and splintered because uh, uh, Marsh and Lilly couldn't believe what Hughes was doing. He kept bowling the quicks, thinking that Botham was going to edge a ball into the slips. Uh, But, of course, the force of... 
the swing of Ian's bat, took any edges over the slips to third man, and if they pitched it up, he crashed it through extra cover. The argument started on the field as Botham's innings progressed, and then he started playing absolutely brilliantly, and of course inspired first Dilly, and then Chris Old, who made an important mm. contribution as well. But it was a marvellous sight watching this very experienced and highly skilled Australian pace attack being absolutely taken to pieces by both of them. And whilst this is going on, there's also the, the now infamous Aussie bet, the 500 to 1. I think Labrokes offered that um, before England's uh, final innings, uh, England to win the match. And Lillian Marsh took the bet. Uh, I think it's Peter Giza Tribe, who was the Australian coach driver. He went and put the bet on for them. So he had all this going on, which is another bizarre twist of fate. Not, not to do away from the cricket, but I think also um, Bob Taylor tried to get a bet on, but couldn't do it because he got <laughs> stung by autograph hunters. Is That's, that right? I didn't know that yeah, about Bob. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> dear old Godfrey Evans was the Ladbrokes consultant. Uh, uh, at that time I mean uh, nowadays uh, I mean no actual professional bookmaker in a two horse race would ever offer odds of uh, 500 to 1 we know that the Aussies would bet on two flies crawling up the wall uh, or their very um, uh, sophisticated game called two up which became Jeff Thompson's nickname in Australia where you throw two coins on the ground and you've got to guess uh, whether they're going to come up two heads, two tails or one of each. I mean, it that takes a lot of, lot, of, lot of brain power <laughs> to sort that out. But yeah, uh, <laughs> Marsh and Lily got their bet on. But I don't think even uh, in those days there would have been a huge ICC and Scotland Yard investigation <laughs> into them throwing the match. No, not for a moment was I suggesting the match was thrown, but it's just this funny little backstory, and also that poor Bob Taylor just couldn't get round to get his bet on. Yeah, because that would have sorted uh, him out post-career. Well, but. autograph hunters came, and bless him, he couldn't get to the tent in time and was called back to a team meeting. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, and uh, Bob Taylor, such a nice guy, would never deny anybody an autograph, even if it meant uh, missing out on a winning bet. And then... Australia is, and then still, even after Ian's heroics of 149 not out, Australia has set just 130 to win. So now the game's going to the wire. The public is starting to get excited. I mean, we, we talked earlier about there was a recession on. It wasn't a great time in England in the summer of 81. But suddenly the nation is being captivated by this game. And then this is your famous moment, Bob, where you take eight wickets to win the match. Yep, um, England had rather strangled out uh, Graham Wood early in the piece. He was a little bit, uh, both of them never got really tired, but uh, he was perhaps a little bit fatigued by his efforts with the bat. And as Mike Brilly mentioned earlier, uh, Graham Dilly was the rising force, and as today, a swing was the uh, big thing against. Uh, uh, touring sides coming to England so it was Botham and Dilly who took the new ball and apart from the dismissal of Wood I think Australia got for, to 52 for one yep. I was the fourth England bowler used and um, 
I'd started bowling up the hill from the football stand end. I think uh, um, Mike was a little bit concerned about this no-ball problem I had and thought it, if I bowled down the hill I'd be overstepping all the time. But I said to him, I think I'm a little bit old and long in the tooth to be bowling up this hill into the breeze. Uh, better have a go down the hill. So uh, then uh, we picked up the three wickets in quick succession. And that was just before lunch, is That's that right? right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it changes the complexion of it, I guess. Very much so. The um, brilliant catch, both from Court, Kim Hughes, uh, Trevor Chappell got a brute of a ball which leapt from quite a good length. and Gassing at short leg. And uh, Graham Yallop was uh, caught by... Uh, uh, Gatting at short leg trying to evade another short pitch delivery so you could feel the pressure of the situation going from us to the Australians and uh, having been 52 for one to then being four down uh, with still some way to go to knock off the winning runs um, we had uh, a complete change of heart about the outcome of this contest. And then you come out in the afternoon and you're running down the hill from the Kirkstall Lane end. Yep, and um, some more very fine catches. John Dyson went for a hook and gloved the ball through to Bob Taylor. And uh, then the famous Dilly catch on the boundary with Rod Marsh uh, going for a pool shot. And then there was... uh, an innovative innings from uh, Dennis Lilly, who inched Australia closer to the target, hit it into the leg side and picked up a few boundaries. And then another pitched-up delivery. He tried to clip wide of Gatting uh, at mid-on, and Mike, sensing it might have been a pork pie, uh, <laughs> dived forward and took another tumbling catch. So the catching which had been so fragile and disappointing at Trent Bridge just a couple of test matches earlier was transformed and everything was sticking. What was going through your mind at the time? Because the footage is compelling. You are in your own world. In You're the almost zone. zombified, <laughs> you know. And, and it's astounding to watch. What was it can you remember? What yeah, was going I your didn't mind? want I didn't want any distractions from celebrations or field changings. Uh, Mike was in charge of setting the field. I was just totally focused on reproducing the type of delivery that had been successful—a ball or a few balls earlier. So I just wanted to march back to my mark completely focused, not be distracted by anything and that's uh, how it worked out and Mike said forget about overstepping, just come in the pitch was deteriorating fast and of course uh, the icing on the cake was um, Ray Bright's middle stump cartwheeling out of the ground and uh, that is probably uh, the moment that I'll take to the grave and that is the moment where the series swings in the space of a few weeks. England beaten at Trent Bridge, both them um, walking off here at Lords through the long room in disgrace. And then suddenly at Headingley, you have this amazing game and it turns around. And you took eight for 43 in that final innings, Bob, and you still weren't man of the match. What well, Fred <laughs> Truman was the adjudicator, so uh, Fred would never give the man of the match to a bowler uh, because none of them were ever as good as him. <laughs> but uh, 
Well, it, the it, eight, 40, eight for 43 wouldn't have happened without uh, Botham's innings. Um, and maybe there was a case because it was a match-winning bowling performance for me getting the uh, Man of the Match award there. But uh, I'm, I'm going I'm to go for you on the, on the case. Partnership of 37 as well, Bob, at the end. Now, admittedly, you only contributed two of those with, with Beefy, but still, without that 37 partnership for the 10th wicket, you know, you wouldn't have had a target with which to bowl at. That's exactly I, right. I, 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 I keep, I keep underlining how important those two runs were and the partnership with Ian. He must have got most of the other 35. I don't know how many were extras amongst that, but I did manage to hold out for a while while he uh, increased our lead from, uh, well, from under 100 to the 129 that it turned out in the end. But, uh, uh, you know, we I sort of spiralled off the field and sprinted to the dressing room as the crowd ran onto the pitch. I think I've met 250,000 people <laughs> who said they were at the game. And the, the sad thing was that uh, in those days, of course, there was another important county fixture the next day. I think it was the second round of the Gillette Cup. So by the time both them, Willis and Brearley had done the TV interviews and the radio interviews and gone to the press conference we came back to the dressing room and although the champagne had been transferred from the Australian bath to England's bath there wasn't anybody left to celebrate everybody <laughs> had packed up and gone off to their county match so I can remember just having a pint in the dressing room with uh, Ian I think he was famously photographed uh, with a cigar in his mouth and perhaps a pint of bitter. And that was all the celebration was. So it was a great shame that there wasn't any open-top bus ride through the centre of Leeds to uh, celebrate that incredible match. But, of course, uh, what might have been Botham and Willis's ashes, that was all dashed when Ian's heroics at Old Trafford and Edgbaston an actual better century at Old Trafford than at Headingley, and then, of course, a spell of five for one at Edgbaston to win that test match as well, where, um, I mean, uh, Hughes's captaincy ended in tears in Brisbane, I think, against the West Indies a few years later, but he was pretty close to tears at Edgbaston trying to explain away another Aussie Lightning batting twice. That, yeah. That's what's so astonishing about this series, that... They were chasing 130 to win at Headingley, and they were chasing 152, I think, 150-something at Edgbaston. A week 151, it was, 151. yeah. 151, yeah. Oh, I need to do my research. It's uh, written in and, front of you, Phil. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. And, and again, just as they were 50-odd 50, 50 for one at Headingley, needing 80, and yeah. obviously collapsed there, similar things were happening at Edgbaston as well. They got off to a reasonably good start, didn't they? And they were kind of 50-odd needed with about six, six wickets in, in hand. And I think Brearley turns to both of them and he says, do you fancy it? And he says, well, I think we should bowl Peter Willey because it's turning a little bit. And then Brearley says, I think you might want to have a go. But at yeah. this point, you know, Ian is inspired and the, sort of the tide has just turned now. The, the Edgebaston test, um, there's also been a royal wedding in between Headingley and Edgebaston. So suddenly the country's come alive and um, suddenly it's a great summer. Yeah, I, I don't think any other uh, sporting e event in the summer, obviously, um, you know, World Cup winning soccer is a bit different, uh, but uh, 
in the summer, the ashes does focus everybody's attention. And even if um, England end up losing ashes series, unlike Australia, where the Australians desert their team if they're losing at home, people have bought tickets in advance for our smaller cricket grounds here and even towards the end of the series the grounds are always packed for these contests so for England to be on the brink of turning round uh, the whole series in those later matches caught everybody's imaginations and people there was a you know high unemployment and uh, the, the Thatcher government was probably at its most unpopular at that time. Uh, it certainly, along with the wedding, gave everybody a huge lift. And um, although the uh, the final Test match was uh, a pretty uh, mundane draw, uh, those three middle Test matches which England won will certainly uh, be etched in people's cricket consciousness forever. And and the iconography of it as well. The Edgbaston game, when I first saw that on the old VHS that my nan bought me, that really clinched it for me because Headingley was miraculous, but there was a kind of... It was those Yorkshire, cloudy, sort of slightly slightly dank kind of atmosphere, but, Heading, but Edgbaston looked, looked like it was 35 degrees, and the crowd, as you get at Edgbaston more than anywhere else probably in the country, the crowd was so into it, and... I saw for the first time as a young kid that cricket could actually be exhilarating. I knew it could yeah. be interesting. I knew it could be tough. I didn't know it could be thrilling in that respect. And I think Botham's five for one, he was riding on that kind of atmosphere there, it seemed. When he got the ball and turned on this <laughs> magic performance again, you know, and some of the dismisses, dismissals were pretty embarrassing um, hmm. you know I think Martin Kent trying to hit a full length ball through mid-wicket and getting bold and of yeah. course Lily having a dramatic slog and Marsh as well and Bob Taylor taking the catch off Lily at the second attempt That's it, yeah. and then you know Marsh and Lily sort of belligerently walking off and you could see that they were um, so anti-Kim Hughes that, that any uh, bit of team spirit that was left in the Australian dressing room was quickly being dissipated by another embarrassing uh, batting performance. It was great. Yeah. Just, just, um, just before the Old Trafford test, there's a little, little story from uh, the brilliant Australian writer Christian Ryan who wrote about uh, the Kim Hughes story. Um, and it's called Golden Boy, The Bad Old Days of Australian Cricket. And there's yeah. one particular story... An anecdote from there, they were staying in a London hotel between the two test matches and Lily and, and Hughes have a scrap, they have a fight and it's towards the back end of an evening and by the end of it, uh, they're basically down to their, their, their underpants and, and a vest and they're both in that scenario and they're both staggering back to the London hotel from whichever club or bar they'd been at having essentially kind of undressed each other in the midst of this, of this fight and then rather shamefacedly just, just sort of staggered back, heads bowed, back to their hotel room. So if, if ever you want a, just a little glimpse of how everything was collapsing all around them, then there, there's your image for you. Kim Hughes and Dennis Lilly walking along, 
put on well or somewhere like that in their in their pants. Well, I'm sure the uh, our Australian listeners are going to really enjoy some of these stories <laughs> that the two of you are coming out with now. So it was then at Old Trafford that this <laughs> Botham's great century and the series is wrapped up at that point. Three one, England retained the Ashes, and and what a summer of cricket it was. Just to finish on now, Bob. I mean. Was this the most iconic Ashes series ever? I mean, for an Englishman. Well, I guess the guys involved in it would like to say so, and probably in terms of, you know, a boy's comic, Roy of the Rovers stuff, uh, you couldn't have written a script that anyone would believe that uh, this sort of turnaround could happen. I guess the 2005 series came pretty close, uh, you know, the the Edgbaston Test match of that series was one which uh, nobody will forget either. But I think as a bunch of um, uh, of Test matches together, there was nothing quite like 1981. And uh, a single hero like Botham really was the stuff of uh, fairy tales. Uh, and I think that the... Um, uh, the lift it gave the country. It was similar in 2005, but I think uh, people's uh, sort of feelings in 2005 were a lot brighter uh, during those times than the sort of dark days of 1981. So although I'm obviously biased, I'd like to say it was a a very important factor in lifting the whole uh, sort of psyche of the country. Well, I think that rounds it off perfectly. Thanks for listening to this Ashes special podcast, the second episode in this three-part series in association with Wisdom Cricket Monthly. This was 1981, Botham's Ashes, with my guests Bob Willis and Phil Walker. In the next and final episode, we'll revisit Australia's dominance in the 1990s and England's resurgence since the 2005 home series. I'll be joined by former England bowler Simon Jones, journalist and writer Emma John and Wisdom Cricket Monthly's Joe Harmon to chew over all that. In the meantime, remember to subscribe and download the podcast from all the usual podcast providers. Episode 1, The Birth of the Urn and Bodyline is already out. And for more information, head to lords.org forward slash podcast. You've been listening to the Lords Cricket Podcast, an Ashes special.